little crazy. The evidence is clear. The assault was thrown together on the run by these two men of no consequence and no meaningful cause. One of them didn't even have a gun, so the other had to go out the day before and buy him one. They were upset by newspaper reports of what was going on in Puerto Rico, where an equally silly group of men were attempting a coup, like they do down there all the time, something equally stupid and futile. In Washington, the two gunmen further expressed their deep state of mental disorganization by acting in strange ways. On the morning of the attempt, for example, they went sightseeing. It turned out they thought Truman lived in the White House, and a cab driver told them the president had moved across the street while the White House was being remodeled. Then, back in the hotel room, one had to teach the other how to work the gun. One of them even went up to the hotel clerk on the day of the attempt as he was leaving and inquired about an extended checkout time. And that was the smart one. The dumb one was an unemployed salesman, a ladies' man, an abject failure in life. Nothing at all is known about this fellow, but why should it be, since he is so predictable? Like so many disgruntled would-be assassins, this was his chance to count in a world that had denied his existence. They had no plan and no understanding of tactics. In the actual fight itself, the Secret Service and the White House policemen essentially brushed them aside. The two never came close to getting into Blair House, and even if they had, it would have made no difference as an agent with a Tommy gun was waiting just inside the door. Harry Truman was never in any mortal danger. In the end, many Americans concluded, it was more a joke, a farce, an opera buffa than anything else. There's only one trouble with assigning these meanings to the 38.5 desperate violent seconds of November 1st, 1950. Every single one of them is wrong. Chapter 1 A Drive Around Washington This story could start in a great number of places. It could start with Columbus's arrival on a Caribbean island called Borinquen in 1493, or General Nelson A. Miles's arrival on the same island, now called Puerto Rico, in 1898. It could start at a Harvard graduation, a football game in Dubois, Pennsylvania, the collapse of a staircase railing in the Capitol in San Juan, even a Virginia farm boy's decision to go to the city and become a police officer. But no matter where it starts, it ends in the same place, a fury of gunfire that broke apart a quiet afternoon on Pennsylvania Avenue in Washington, D.C., just across from the White House, November 1st, 1950. It ends, as most gunfights do, with men dead, men wounded, wives in mourning, causes lost, lives shattered, duty followed hard, and regrets that never pass. But let's begin, arbitrarily to be sure, at 3.18 p.m., September 23rd, 1950, in Washington. On that day, at that time, 
A father and a daughter slipped out the back door of their federal-style townhouse, climbed into a well-waxed, specially-built black Lincoln driven by a tough-looking customer who carried a gun, and went for a little drive. The old man may have looked like a rich snoot out on the town, but rich snoot doesn't describe him. He was famously plain-spoken, hard-working, sensible, tough— and had the common touch. He was sixty-six, well-dressed, a giver of hell from the show-me state, a man who stood in the kitchen no matter the heat. He was the thirty-third president of the United States, Harry S. Truman. His daughter, half a head shorter, was an elegant, poised young woman who took more after her mother than the pepper-pot ex-haberdasher, ex-artillery officer who was her father. Margaret Truman, twenty-six, was pursuing a career as a concert singer, touring the East Coast. She always had the dignity of a diva. She had taken this weekend off and had returned Friday afternoon by train from New York. Compartment A, car 250, train 125, accompanied by Special Agent Theodore Peters, to visit her father, while her mother, Bess, was off in the Truman hometown of Independence, Missouri. The mansion the president departed that afternoon bore the name Blair Lee House, sited diagonally across Pennsylvania Avenue from the White House. A regal, elegant dwelling from the outside, it served as substitute home for the chief executive family while the 130-odd-year-old living quarters of the White House across the street were being modernized. The father and daughter were close. He was a devoted and doting dad, who a few months later would fire off an angry letter to Washington Post music critic Paul Hume, who had said unkind things about his daughter's singing. "'Some day I hope to meet you. When that happens, you'll need a new nose.' a lot of beefsteak for black eyes, and perhaps a supporter below, the president wrote, giving hell as was his style. The drive, to nowhere important, lasted a little less than an hour, until 4.12 p.m. The day had clouded over, but it was warm, 74 degrees at 3.15, and it is not recorded what the two discussed as they traveled, but it can't have been a happy time. For even as they moved through the quiet streets of the capital and enjoyed the pleasure of an early fall day, a political drama played out under the big white dome that stood upon the hill that dominated the federal triangle. Possibly the president didn't look at the capital. He suspected he was going to lose this one, and his mood must have been disgust and contempt. The drama at that very second dominating the U.S. Senate, swirled about the McCarran Act, an 81-page accumulation of internal security, some would call it Red Scare, legislation proposed by an old enemy of Truman's from the Senate, the 74-year-old Democrat from Nevada. Pat McCarran, a man with a profile that belonged on a Roman coin, a large hawkish nose that seemed to incline lower with age, and thick, wavy white hair cresting high on his head, was a shrewd politician, and unlike the more famous but less effective Joseph McCarthy, he was an insider. 
a master of parliamentary procedure. His bill was a patchwork of the many different security bills that had been circulating around the Congress in the years after World War II, when, in the wake of several security scandals, such as those involving Alger Hiss, Klaus Fuchs, and the Rosenbergs, the fear of communist espionage and subversion was at its highest. The Act mandated, among other things, that communists and front groups register with the government— and declare their literature as propaganda, that communists not hold passports or governmental jobs, and that it was now a crime to commit any act that might contribute to the establishment of a totalitarian dictatorship in the United States, whatever that might be. When he introduced it on September 5th, McCarran had all but declared war on his opponents— I serve notice here and now that I will not be a party to any crippling or weakening amendments, and that I shall oppose with all the power at my command any move to palm off on the American people any window-dressing substitute measure in the place of sound internal security legislation. Truman wasn't an anti-anti-communist. In 1946, he crafted a temporary loyalty security program for the federal government and made it permanent in 1947. And he was aware that his administration had a reputation for being soft on communism. But this was too much. Like many, he believed the bill was a modern-day version of the Alien and Sedition Acts of 1798, and he had a bedrock belief that the Bill of Rights was the most important part of the Constitution.